Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. So I have a six-year-old and a three-year-old, and this is the joke that they literally tell me every single day. They go, knock, knock, and I go, who's there? And they go, orange. I go, orange you, and they go, aren't you glad to see me? And, you know, I'd like to think my kids are very creative, and I'd like to think that we're in a time when there would be better jokes. Clearly, she's never heard this show before. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And from APM, American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the show that helps you win your next dinner party. You just got a joke from Soleil Moon Fry, a.k.a. Punky Brewster. The very one. Her new book is about parenting. It's called Happy Chaos. Wait, Punky Brewster's a parent? I know. Are you feeling old enough yet? <laughs> uh, and coming up, filmmaker Gus Van Zant, America Says Uncle, Gluten-Free Free, and How Come You Never Go There? Because it scares me. Okay. But first, small talk. All week long, you've been hearing this. It's called the American Jobs Act. Huge wildfires in central Texas. The nation will mark 10 years since the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Now for something you haven't heard, we turn to Rehan Harmansi. She is the culture editor at The Bay Citizen. Rehan, what are you going to be talking about this weekend? Well, in San Francisco, there is a proposal to create a new kind of public restroom. All right. That would fit inside a parking space oh. um, yeah. in a European style. It does not require water, so it is very ecologically friendly. Wait, um, Europe doesn't require water? <laughs> How does a bidet um, work without water? They just use sparkling water. That's what you meant. Evian-fueled. So wait, th- this is cool. It's eco-friendly and very compact. And it would be a translucent public restroom. Now Um, now it's European. Now I see the European part. (laughs) I was with you up until the translucency. (laughs) Well, so San Francisco has public restrooms, but they're known for being places where drug use and prostitution take place. So now we're to combat crime, we're going to have public restrooms that we can see what's going on inside of them? Well, they're not transparent. You can see more like shadows. So instead of like those iPod ads where there's a silhouette of someone dancing at a bus stop, you'll see people... Doing something else. Yeah, exactly. Or dancing. Or dancing. <laughs> or dancing. It's or San dancing. Francisco. <laughs> Rayhan Harmansi, thank you for the small talk. <laughs> thank you, guys. And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve with it. It's like history is a gentleman who cools his freshly shaved face with a bracing splash of booze. I hope history is not going to a job interview. (laughs) First, the history part. This week back in 1813, America's greatest character was born. No, it wasn't Hawkeye Pierce. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. Samuel Wilson was the USA, figuratively speaking. Sam's life wasn't especially remarkable. The son of Scottish immigrants, he grew up to run a meatpacking business. When the War of 1812 rolled around, Sam supplied barrels of beef to the army. And that's when he became an American symbol. See, the beef barrels were stamped U.S. And soldiers joked the initials stood not for the meat's country of origin, but for the guy who'd shipped it, their good old Uncle Sam. In September 1813, Sam's local newspaper caught wind of the story and ran with it. Soon, Uncle Sam became the go-to nickname for the U.S. government. So when the superstar political cartoonist Thomas Nast needed to symbolize America, he drew a goateed guy in a star-spangled suit and named him Uncle Sam. The best-known Uncle Sam wasn't drawn by Nast, though. It was the one on that 
I Want You military recruitment poster, illustrated by James Flagg, who humbly based Uncle Sam's face on his own. Rumor has it, so he wouldn't have to pay a model. So that was the history. Now it's time for the booze to go along with it. I'm on the phone with Bob Fornicero. He is the general manager of The Ruck in Troy, New York, which is apparently where the original Uncle Sam came from. Uh, Bob, what drink did this uh, history inspire you to make? Well, this kind of inspired us to start off with something that's a little bit of a blue-collar origin, but uh, locally sourced. I think a red, white, and blue-collar would be more appropriate for Uncle Sam. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Starting off with 1.5 ounces of Cornelius Applejack. Okay, and what is Applejack? Applejack historically is one of the first spirits to be produced in the United States. It takes these guys roughly 60 pounds of apples to make each bottle. All right, well, what else is in your drink? One ounce of blackcurrant cordial. Okay. A half ounce of Hudson New York corn whiskey. And we garnish the cocktail with an Applejack cherry and a strip of hickory smoked beef jerky from uh, Damn Good Jerky Company. Wow. I wonder why they called it Damn Good Jerky. It's it's pretty damn good. Okay. It's interesting. Big Brother is also another name for the government related to the family, and people don't like that, but they like Uncle Sam somehow. Well, Uncle Sam's kind of one of those fun characters in history. But he does have that weird facial hair. He kind of looks like a relief pitcher. That little Billy Goat uh, goatee. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't believe the real Sam Wilson had a goatee quite as extreme as that one. Yeah, I don't think if you're putting meat in barrels, you should have facial hair hanging around. You'd have to wear a little uh, little hair net around your chin. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, Brendan, cool drink. Yeah. I like the jerky garnish. Always. Symbolizing Uncle Sam's meatpacking origins. Speaking of which, I can't stop thinking about the barrels of meat. Right. They, they barreled meat. There's America for you. <laughs> Right there. I can see that catching on at Applebee's, another symbol of America, you know? Like meat barrel Mondays. Pouring a gallon of cheese, (laughs) 4th of July on a plate. Gross. Folks, we have barrels of drink recipes at our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. Our guest of honor this week is filmmaker Gus Van Zant. He got Oscar nominations for directing Milk and Goodwill Hunting. He won the Palme d'Or at Cannes for his movie Elephant. His new one is called Restless, and Gus, it is an honor. Thanks. This movie is it's a sweet love story between a kid who's very obsessed with death and a, a young woman who's dying of cancer. This is one of many films where you're talking about these kind of marginalized kids. What draws you to that subject matter over and over again? Hmm. I guess it's a it's a place that is kind of removed from everyday life, like the westerns removed from everyday life or um, space travel. The, the world of teendom, kind of. Well, marginalized teendom, yes. I know, I know that sort of one of the things that started you down that path was coming to Hollywood and seeing, like, for instance, street kids in Hollywood. Yeah, that's that's where I first saw, like, homeless kids. I was just out of college. What do you remember thinking? It was, um, it was my neighborhood. I was going to the same restaurants that they were going to because I was scrimping by with bad Chinese food and so forth. But I was kind of wondering, wow, you know, I look at these kids every day, but, you know, I'm not really connecting with their reality you know, what it really is like, you know. So I was interested in creating something that was written about them. And I kind of like stopped because I felt like I didn't know enough about the world 
that's something that you've kept trying to do, I guess, throughout your career? Yeah, I just sort of put it aside. And then I, I was presented with the same world up in Portland, like a different version of the world. I realized, oh, wow, there's some more of those kids. And um, I eventually got to know one of them. So it was like I, I made the jump. And by then I'd had some experience. So I was a little more sure of myself as a, as a writer. And you have to be pretty self-assured to make movies like you do. You use a lot of improv. Uh, you've cast some films with kids who've never acted before. Why leave so much to chance? Most directors, I think, want to exercise firm control. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a way you can work. I mean, it's kind of like, I think, if you went on a, a hike and you insisted on everything happening exactly like you wanted it to happen, or else it, you weren't going to have a fun hike. But sometimes the insisting is the thing that makes the hike not fun, you know? We're going up that hill. I don't care if you didn't bring the right shoes. Right, exactly. I was reading about one of your directorial techniques. Tell me about the silent take. Um, it's just a take with, you know, the actors not saying the dialogue that they would normally say. So, so if somebody ran out of the bank and said, let's run for it, your silent take would be that they would run out of the bank and not say anything, and then they'd run. There's something, especially in the context of this movie, that almost breaks my heart to think about what those scenes must have been like. Two young people who are, you know, confronting death to sort of silently working with each other. What was the atmosphere like for you on the set? Well, the silent takes were just kind of like routine. They weren't... Um, for some reason, I just imagine people like staring into each other's eyes and breaking down crying. I think in certain cases it was like that, but then the dialogue scenes were like that as well. We should have cheeseburgers and milkshakes. <laughs> we are. No, I mean at my memorial. Oh, yeah. And tacos and lo mein and red vines. <laughs> and pizza and fluffer nutters. And everybody can just really pig out. I mean, that's what people do when they're upset anyway, right? Yeah. And we can just hang out by the milkshakes the whole time. Oh, right. We usually ask two standard questions of our guests, uh, but our time is limited here, so here's the important one. And it's less a question than an order. Tell us something we don't know. Um, well, I think, I think one thing that might not be known is that we have a silent version of the movie that we made out of the silent takes. Like a, a completely silent version of the entire film? Does it work? I mean, when you play it through, can you figure out a story? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, it's great. So from this point on, are we going to see only dialogueless Gus Van Zandt films? No, but you might see one or two. So, Brendan, fascinating, right? Completely wordless performances. Uh, it doesn't work on the radio. Dude. Oh. Sorry. That's too bad. Mm -hmm. uh, ladies and gentlemen, make <laughs> your voices heard on our Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash dinnerpartydownload. So we've heard from our guest of honor. Now it's time for the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. Enrico, what did gluten ever do to us, you know? He had that affair. While he was president. Gluten, gluten, not Clinton. Oh, then I don't know what you're talking about. What I'm talking about is gluten has become like this dirty word, you know? Well, that's like, true. Like mullet, empathy, <laughs> all these words we thought were okay. It's true. Not okay. I see gluten-free stuff all over the supermarkets. They're going to have to start labeling things gluten positive. Yeah. 
That'll be a special <laughs> government label. Gluten-free free. Novak Djokovic, the top tennis player in the world, yeah. he attributes his success partially to going gluten-free. That I don't know that that's true. He needs something holding him together. He probably, with that serve, you would think, right? Anyway, I, I decided it was time to see what's behind the great gluten purge, so I reached out to Erin McKenna. She owns Baby Cakes, a super popular vegan bakery in New York and L.A. that makes gluten-free goodies. All right. Uh, and I asked her point blank, why does everyone hate gluten? <laughs> I don't know that it's necessarily that people hate gluten, but I think that more and more people are trying out a gluten-free diet and seeing incredible differences in their health mm -hmm. and therefore have decided to just eliminate it completely. You know, it's also the media coverage, so mm -hmm. it's in people's consciousness more and more. And so it's easier to immediately think when you're feeling sick, hey, maybe I have an issue with gluten. Well, what is the problem with gluten? You know, I don't know for sure what's the problem across the board. I know that if you're celiac, then your body attacks gluten as if it's a virus. Mm -hmm. So you get really sick. There's also just a sensitivity to wheat in general mm -hmm. for people like me. And we just get bad headaches. We feel like almost hungover, stomach upset. See, I thought that's just what it felt like to be alive. You know? <laughs> um, by the way, can you explain what gluten is and where it's usually found? Gluten is the protein in wheat and many other grains that adds viscosity and stretchiness to the dough. It's you know, what makes bread so delicious, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. And so how do you make gluten-free things taste good? The way that I've found to be the best method is a combination of garbanzo and fava bean flour, rice flour, and then some arrowroot and potato starch. Whoa. And then there's this stuff called xanthan gum that acts as the gluten. It, it binds the batter together. Xanthic gum. Wow. That doesn't really sound yes. healthy either. Uh, celiac disease is a serious thing. I read somewhere that there were in 2003, there were 40,000 cases diagnosed. But now there are like millions of cases diagnosed. I know. And that shift, you know, to be honest, makes me a little skeptical. And, and add to that, I have friends, all these friends now claiming that they have that disease. And, and it makes me think, really? Like, how did we survive so long without knowing about well, this? Well, I think that and this is just my theory, is mm -hmm. that over time, wheat flour has changed. It's not what it was when our parents were growing up. There was a time when there was a wheat mill in every town, and mm -hmm. everything was fresh. To me, because wheat has become so hybridized, I think that a lot more people are finding that they're allergic to it more. Yeah, that makes sense to me on one level. But that's not the same as having a medical condition that requires you to yeah. no longer eat pasta, you know? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I can't really speak on it. I just, yeah. all I know is what, you know, what I've been that through. That people are buying what I'm selling. Hell yeah. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> well, look, your bakery's named Baby Cakes, right? Yeah. Which yes. is a great name, fun name. Thanks. Um, it's actually my name. Lots of people called me that growing up. Oh, my up. God. I can't believe you So we have you to get stole... you a T-shirt. Yeah, did you overhear someone <laughs> calling me Baby Cakes at the train station? You're the here? only one. <laughs> but That's crazy. Maybe we, you can help me brainstorm a better name than gluten-free because gluten-free uh, is so awkward. Let's call it um, – this is a good challenge. I like this. I'm I'm obviously removed gluten, so I like a challenge. <laughs> That's true. Um, well, we at the bakery, you call it GF. But, oh, GF's not bad. Um, GF. GF, it's I like just GF. Two letters. Yeah, with a nice symbol, you can get that designed by someone who obviously is gluten free and hang out at your 
bakery with a laptop all day, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not spending money. Um, oh, I love those people. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing. But do you find the gluten-free people are a little more persnickety? You know, you can tell. Yes. I won't tell. Yeah. They're a little more yes, like particular. absolutely 100%. <laughs> there, there's two reasons. Sometimes it's a parent who rightfully is really nervous about getting their child sick. I can see that. But then there's people who self-diagnose and are a little bit. Mm. Um, it's the self-diagnosers, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it, they tend to be a little, <laughs> they read an article and all of a sudden they're freaked out about a few things. Yeah. I think somebody gave it a term. It's like some form of um, eating disorder. Hipster, it's, no. No, mm-hmm. no, no, no. <laughs> Hipsters usually come in and they're like, I want gluten. I love gluten. You know, they try <laughs> oh, yeah. to be Oh, interesting. Contrary. Oh, no, wait, am I one of them? It's more of like a, an obsession with eating healthy and organic and clean. Mm. How about a pain in the ass sapien, <laughs> perhaps? <laughs> no. I love all my customers. So, Brendan, I like how you came to the shocking realization during that interview uh-huh. that you might be a food contrarian. Not a, not a surprise to me. <laughs> all right, that could be true. Uh, but does that guy who's persnickety about his food sound like anyone we know, maybe? Mm. Mr. Galliani? Together, we are the worst customer in the world. <laughs> Folks, that's the Dinner Party download this week. Jackson Musker is our production assistant. Yes. Thanks to Chris Clark, Eve Tro, Peter Clowney, and Ellen Gettler. And we'd also like to thank you in advance for your help. Yes, over the next few weeks, we are going to be working on a longer version of the show, which some of you will be hearing on the actual radio The soon. actual radio. That is a plus. Meanwhile, we'll be trying out some new segments here, and we would love to know what you think. Not just that. We'd like you to give us some ideas for segments. Yes, for free. Uh, like, honestly. It's important. <laughs> There's a reason this show has never run longer than a half hour. We get very tired. Contact us through our website, dinnerpartydownload.org, and tell us what you would like to hear. Yes, and also, we may post a few rerun episodes while we toil on new stuff. Sorry about that. But hey, even Punky Brewster aired the occasional rerun. You know, And those are great reruns. That's how we met at the Punky Brewster listserv. A lot of people don't know that. Yeah. And now we leave you with One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this weekend's dinner party. Feist has a new album coming out in October, but you can hear a song from it right now. It's called How Come You Never Go There. Bon appétit.
rejections We're living proof we gotta let go And stop looking through the halo We carry on as if the time is true You carry on as if I don't love you And so we find the way out To cover our out of the doubt now The rooms for us are empty Like the letters never sent me The words are like a lesson You're an instrumental too I'm Rico Galliano. And I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And coming next summer, the new film from Gus Van Zandt. Rated R. (laughs) 